Welcome to Screw the Hierarchy, episode 113. This is your host, Deb Falzoy, and this week we're talking about how men are negatively stereotyped. I'm talking this week with Fred Hayward, who is a co-founder of the men's rights movement in 1977. He's been... Um, quoted in the Washington Post, hundreds of, of local and national talk shows. He was a visiting lecturer at Tufts where he taught the first college level course on men's rights. And he's going to talk about um, the ways that we as a culture undervalue men, are, men and boys. Are you ready to hear what Fred has to say? More after this. If you're a target of workplace abuse and want to break free of the grips of abusive power, you've found your place. I'm your host, Deb Falzoy, and the podcast begins now. Before I get started today, I want to talk about Patreon. I have a new Patreon account at patreon.com slash screw the hierarchy, and I have a really quick survey on there about what kind of rewards you'd like. Everything from early access to episodes to exclusive episodes, behind the scenes content. All right, Fred. So what um, what made you start a men's rights movement? What did you experience personally? You know, I, I was thinking about this and I realized there's really two parts to that question. Um, because the first part is what made me start it. And then the second is why start it. Um, so first, the me part was, I, I was always aware of, of gender issues as, as far back as I could remember, um, which would be to like age three, age two or three. Um, although I didn't have the vocabulary to, to describe it, um feminism gave us a vocabulary for that but i was always aware of it and always um not happy with it with what i saw because the the first thing that i the reason i said it goes back to age two or three is because i remember the korean war and as i became aware that there was a world outside my my little street where i grew up that was the big thing that every day I would hear about how many men had died and um, realizing that we're kind of bred for that as men, you know, like it was already something depressing for, as, er, as early as I can remember. And, um, and I saw female power. I was surrounded by it in my home life. Um, my dad would just disappear in the morning and come back at night. So my mom ran everything. My older sister terrorized me. Um, in school, I saw girls having all kinds of power, um, and the teachers were female, the principal was female, you know, like I just saw a lot of female power. Um, and then I became a teacher, a public school teacher, and I saw boys dealing with a lot of problems and things that I could quantify, you know, like, look who's being disciplined, look, who, look who's not in foreign languages, look who's behind in reading, look, look at all these things. And I was literally not allowed to talk about it because by the, the school district rules, you had to focus only on, on girls and girls' issues. Um, and I was a math teacher and one of my jobs was to um, interest girls, increase the number of girls coming into math, which I believe in, you know, I believe in equal opportunity. And I thought that was a good thing. But I was also aware of the fact that this was now during the Vietnam War. And as a math teacher, I was actually exempt from the draft at that time, because there weren't enough shop teachers and, and math teachers were exempt from the draft, all other teachers could be drafted because there weren't enough female shop teachers and math teachers. So I was aware that for every girl that I motivated to go into math, I was that there was some boy maybe in my class who would now become his life would become disposable. So it was like, you know, I was aware of all of these things. But the biggest thing in my life was going to um, what was called the National Conference on Men and Masculinity. It was an, uh, an annual affair that had the top people in what was considered men's issues. And 
I kept talking to them about different things and I kept hearing things like, oh, I never thought of that before. And I'm thinking, you're the top people, you never thought about these things? Like um, when a ship goes down, we save all women before we start to save men. Uh, and what does that mean in an emergency? You know, if your house was burning down right now, you what would you grab <laughs> as you ran out of the house if you could only grab one thing? It's it's not the news. It's not yesterday's TV guide or newspapers. You know what I mean? It's what what you saw as most valuable is what you would grab to save in an emergency. And as I looked around, I was saying that society was clearly saying that female life was more valuable than male life. And it was for a lot of reasons, none of which had to do with oppression. It, had, it all, all had to do with continuing as a species, that to produce the next 100 children, you need 100 mothers, but you only need one father, really. So men become disposable for the perpetuation of society. And that is really significant. The fact that we consider female life more valuable than male life plays out in so many areas in society just as we considered male work more valuable than female work and feminism rose um, raised our consciousness of how that affects society but this was an another all you know another area that was being totally overlooked and it's very significant um it's like male life expectancy you know if if, if female life expectancy if if women died at that time, it was um, eight years or seven years before the average man instead of seven years after that would be in the news every night, gender genocide, you know, what are, women are dying. And instead, health was being portrayed as a, a woman's issue. And um, so I, I just I saw a lot that was was being overlooked. And I was talking to these people and the, the, the most important one I talked to was Warren Farrell, who at the time, this, this, it turned out this was a very feminist con uh, conference because feminism dominated, monopolized the discussion on gender issues at the time. And so even though it, it was the National Conference on Men and Masculinity, it had an exclusively feminist approach. And Warren was a hero to the feminist movement at the time. Um, and I talked to him about this, and, and, and these were things also that he hadn't really been considering. Um, but he's the kind of person who, incur he, he said, you have important things to say, and you should consider saying them. And at the time, I was, a, um, I was looking for a career that I was good at and enjoyed. And there, there was no overlap. I was good at these things. I, I enjoyed these things. But um, I realized I'm good at this. I have something unique to contribute to society. And I'm enjoying talking about it and thinking about it. And Warren said, that's your career. Figure out what you're good at and enjoy and do it. And that's your just trust that it's going to work. And I quit my job teaching and I start. I, I, I realized what I want to um, I want to work in the men's movement, in the men's rights movement, but there wasn't any, so I have to create one. And that's what I set about doing. Thanks for sharing that. That's fascinating, like your, your perspective growing up. Um, it actually is, it kind of makes me think of, um, when I was in college, I was actually a women's studies minor. And in one of the classes, um, there was some sort of discussion about um, the, the stigma of emotion, or I believe it was sort of about like what, what we see as masculine and what we see as a culture as feminine. And um, it, it dawned on me at some point during taking this class that the, there, the piece of feminism that we're not talking about, or, or not even feminism, but this like grand uh, of our culture in general is that, um, this stigma that we're placing on expressing emotions, even that was like, that became a, a way to dismiss women, but it's also just extremely damaging with the, you know, the stereotypes of men of um, not uh, 
being encouraged to express emotions or, you know, like that whole piece of it. So, um, yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate those perspectives that you had or have, you know, that, that like what you learned growing up and, um, or what you saw and speaking up about it. Um, I, I, I was totally supportive of the, the stated goals of feminism. Um, and, um, but I saw fatal flaws in, the way it was going about doing that. And, and that's what I wanted to, to introduce. I felt like this, this is an innovation for me to, um, to create. It's, it's um, because, and I was confident because I was learning so much about the female experience from feminism, because from my perspective, women lived on a pedestal, they had privileges, you know, like, what are they complaining about? And I was learning all of these things of how different our experiences are, and that women can tell me what it's really like to be a woman, things that I hadn't thought about from the outside. But at the same time, those same women were telling me what it's like to be a man, even though they had never experienced anything like it, you know, they they were telling me you could do anything. I, at the same time that the government was saying you actually have three choices: um, you can flee the country, you can go to jail, or for flee the country, go to jail, publicly declare you're gay, which was even worse, you know, for a lot of people in, in that time um or uh be drafted into the army and and fight for your life and kill people you don't know and maybe get killed by them and those those were my four options you know and and you're telling me i could do anything I, you know and i just saw so much that feminism was missing and so i started thinking about where is that coming from um and and i decided what, what I saw was that I, I realized feminism is analyzing my experience by from the assumption that it's the opposite of women's experience, that men are the opposite, that we're competitors, that if women have a, a if, if women are discriminated against, that creates an advantage for men. And I said, wait a second, that's not the basic male female dynamic. We're not basically competitors. We're interdependent um if if i earn like um i don't know jeff bezos's wife you know or bill uh gates's wife or something you know if you compare their incomes it's ridiculous but she lives at the same standard of living because we're in a relationship you know it's it's if you really want to look at a person's standard of living you don't look at what they earn you look at what they consume and women were actually consuming at or above the level of men because of of this interdependence um and if so because we're interdependent that that has a few implications one of them is that if one of us has a problem it creates a problem for the other one not an advantage so going back to what i was talking about if women earn less than men if, if we're giving the message to a couple that he can earn more than she can, when they have children, they can't both stay home and raise a child. Somebody has to be earning some money. And since he can earn more than she can, it just makes financial sense for him to be the one to go out and earn some money. And then there's a 50-50 chance of getting divorced. Now he has two households to support. And at each of those levels, every time he's the one going out, that means he has less opportunity to be with his children. And John Lennon, who um, earned more money than you and me and probably your entire podcast audience <laughs> combined and exercised more power, said that the most fulfilling experience of his life was raising his son. You know, this is a significant thing that this so-called advantage is actually what steers us, it creates an obstacle for men experiencing what could be the most fulfilling experience in their lives. And I've been around the world, I've done all kinds of fascinating things. Raising my son was my most fulfilling experience. So um, even, you know, as, as like people, oh, you're a men's rights advocate. Yeah, as a men's rights advocate, even if women didn't want to earn more money, I would want society to change 
things so that women did earn more money because that's in my interest as much as it's in their interest. Um, and Karen DeCrow, who, who was president of, of the National Organization for Women in, back in the 70s, um, she heard me say this at a, at a, a speech and she, she said, that was music to my ears. You know, I can't understand why we're, um, we are opposing joint custody because women can't compete as equals with men on the job market as long as we have that extra burden of childcare. We should be saying, we should be jamming it down their throats, joint custody, we shouldn't be opposing it. But that's what feminist organizations are doing universally, opposing joint custody because they look at us as opposites. They look at us as, well, if you're helping men, you're hurting women. Um, and I felt this needs to change. And another implication of this interdependence and the fact that one person's problem creates another person's problem is that there, therefore every single gender problem can be packaged as a woman's problem because whether it directly or indirectly affects women it still affects women you know it's still it, all the men's problems hurt women and and vice versa um so the like low male life expectancy I, I mentioned if if you look at the coverage of that in the news almost all of it has to do with the problems it creates for women anytime they might even refer indirectly to low male um life expectancy what they're talking about is the poverty rate for widows the loneliness of widow you know how that impacts negatively impacts women which it does um, but by packaging everything as a woman's problem, it makes it look like men don't have any serious problems. And when I, at, oh, at Tufts, Tufts was the first school. I, I taught the first, um, oh, I guess for people listening to the podcast prior to this conversation, I found out that you graduated from Tufts University, which is an excellent school. And I gave the very first course in men's rights. At Tufts, it was at Tufts University, the very first course in the world, as far as I know, was at Tufts University. So these are smart students, as you well know. And I began the class by saying, you know, women don't have any, uh, feminism is completely wrong. Women have all the power, men have all the problems. Tell me where I'm wrong, point out an example. And everything that they pointed out, I was able to repackage as a men's problem because of this interdependent, just as you can, you know, you, we have to look at us as, inter, as interdependent and that we need to help both men and women at the same time. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was um, that I, I had to make sense out of this idea that we respect male work more than female work, but we respect male, female life more than male life, we value that more. And what I realized is that as a species, which we are, we're just animals, you know, and as any animals, in order to survive as a species, they have to produce and reproduce. They have, they have to get food and shelter and defend themselves, and they have to reproduce and, you know, socialize their, their offspring to grow up and continue the species. And um, that these are two equally important spheres. They're, they're equally um, necessary. Whether, you know, we have to be successful in both of those spheres to survive as a species. And that males have been traditionally, we evolved to dominate in the productive sphere, which is politics and economics. And that's where feminists look that, and, and see all this male power. Um, and then there's reproduction, which is where women have been dominating. And so, so just, just as women 
look at um, at, at careers, you know, and, and they said, um, we want equal access to that. We'll call it equal employment opportunity because uh, we want to get power and earn rewards and fulfillment in the productive sphere. The men's movement is looking at the reproductive sphere and, and seeing women exercising tremendous power over society, over little children, over ex-husbands, over the future, you know, um, women getting tremendous sense of fulfillment and women earning the rewards because we're in relationships where we're both consuming together. Um, and men want equal access to that, we'll call it joint custody. And, um, and I looked at every single woman's issue and I realized that because feminists have dominated the discussion, monopolized the discussion, they've defined all of these issues in terms of women making it look like men don't have an issue. Um, but, but if you define it in terms of people, you realize men have the same kinds of issues and we need to work together on this. So that, those are the two big things that I felt I was contributing, that um, the looking at the productive sphere and the reproductive sphere and the powers and responsibilities in both of them and looking at men and women as interdependent instead of competitors. Wow, there's so much there. I'm like trying to figure out where to start. <laughs> I love those points of like interdependence and just uh, uh, the lens that we're looking through and like the 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 feminist movement coming out of not feeling like there was a, a lens through which uh, you know society was was looking through for women and the sort of the backlash that that you're you know saying that that's created be, that is now um, ignoring the lens that men have and not acknowledging you know the needs with joint custody and the um, the need for us to just all as human beings express our needs, be like feel seen and heard around them and just to feel valued around them. And, you know, just to, um, yeah, I mean, that, that is such a huge piece of it just in like, you know, knowing friends experiences or, you know, just the, um, things that we can do, um, to put things on a more equal level by, um, or a more fair level. I don't know what the word is, but just to, to actually uh, like address issues that would make both people happier by addressing both people's needs. I guess that's the best way to say it. I'm like trying to find my words here. Cause yeah, I think you're the way you described it is spot on. Um, I just want to like keep, uh, exploring this piece of it more in the stereotyping aspect of it in in the media um and just how how like prevalent these messages are that we get in that you know inform our implicit bias and the way we view you know a hierarchy or you know like i, I think like as you described we we tend to view things um when we look at a hierarchy from like this economic sense, but there's no real or political sense, political power, economic power, but we're not also looking at it from um, uh, relational pow power or um, I don't know what the word is, like the, the ideas around, you know, the joint custody factor. So I'm curious about your ideas on the stereotyping piece and, um, you know, the media's contribution to that. Uh, one of the earlier things I did, and I, I, I formed a, a nonprofit, like when I decided to do this, I formed a nonprofit corporation, um, hopefully to get funding from other sources. And um, it turned out I, I never got any funding at all because uh, it, all the funding for gender issues was focused on women's issues. And even I thought the Playboy Foundation, if, if anybody was going to care about men, and it turned out, no, they had actually written guidelines that all of their funding would be on women's issues. So I didn't get any funding, but, um, at, but I did become executive director of a corporation, which gave me kind of credibility that I didn't really deserve, but it gave it to like teaching at, at Tufts. I did it because I'm thinking to start a, 
a, a, to start a movement, there's a lot of research that needs to be done that I could cite and I can't do it all. So I'll teach a class and assign it. You know, so we'll get a whole class full of unpaid researchers. And I, uh, I got good stuff from them, you know, but what was most useful was that now I'm not only executive director of a corporation, but I'm a visiting professor you know, at Tufts University and uh, it gave me more credibility, which I didn't really deserve. But, um, it, it's funny how it worked out. Um, but one of the earlier projects that we did with the corporation I started was a media watch and took a thousand random ads and analyzed and what we found was that um, when there was a man and a woman, um, if, if they were competing in anything, whether it was physical, uh, like playing racquetball against each other or something, uh, running a race, or whether it was mental, 100% um, of the time, the women won. If there, if there was a, a mother and a father and one of them was shown to be more competent, 100% of the time it was the mother. If there was someone in, in a group setting, someone who was sleazy, um, someone who's a jerk, 100% of them were, were the men. Um, and if, if there was an object of violence, 100% um, of the time it was the man because it was supposed to be funny and we only laugh at violence against men so and there was just like in every single category the the sexism was so obvious and and so universal um so that was that was one of the things that i saw and i i don't know if you remember the time when, when um the civil rights movement was really developing and um one one of the phrases that came out of there was black is beautiful they needed to tell because all of the objects of beauty that were shown in the media were were uh white caucasian and um and that this was a very destructive message that black children were given growing up they had to be told that black is beautiful and it's the same thing that boys growing up are, are being told you know, men are abusive, men are jerks, men are stupid, you know, men, are, we, ha we have to be told, we have to raise boys to know that that's not true. And because um, otherwise, the downside, like fem feminists that I talk to in, in this, take joy in that, you know, well, well, it's about time that men are shown as jerks, because they have this, this um, myth, actually, that it used to be women were shown as jerks. And it wasn't, it was, it was balanced. Um, for every I love Lucy, you know, who, where she was kind of the, the ditzy one, there was a Jackie Gleason in the honeymooners where he was the ditzy one. And, you know, and, 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 and there were a bunch of sitcoms in both of those categories and the same, the same all over. It used to be balanced. Um, but now we've changed that balance and it's a very unhealthy environment in which to raise boys. If, if that's all they see. Um, and I, I remember doing um, the Charlie Rose show, which is no longer on the air because he ended up in, in, with a Me Too <laughs> accusation against him. Um, and um, so he lost his show. But at the time, he was a, a, a prominent liberal talk show host on uh, PBS. And they wanted to do a show on male images and it was either in the media or in advertising and they had me on. Um, and I said, I, I have accumulated a whole bunch of ads and stuff to illustrate what I want to talk about. And they said, no, we don't, we don't need your stuff. We have a staff to get that. And it was this hubris of feminists feeling that they're the last word on, on sexism. And they know, like, the men's rights movement has nothing to add. They already know everything that's important about sexism and in ads. And so, if things are changed, so I remember he would he would show, like, an an ad of 
a man walking down the street and and women looking at him and you know like obviously eyeing him sexually and checking him out and and um showing him as a sex object and so he he showed that ad and then turned to me and said okay so tell us what's wrong with that expecting me to be all offended because a woman would be offended if that was happening to a woman and um but they don't they didn't do like they don't know what i'm talking about they just assume so um he said so tell me what's uh, offensive about that and and i said well actually i i, I like it <laughs> it's about time that men felt appreciated for what we look like by women um because until now the only male the only attractive male bodies were encased in in a porsche you know or very muscular to show the the work they could perform or the protection they could provide but our bodies ourselves were not appreciated and there's nothing wrong with being a sex object what's wrong is being only a sex object and that's what feminism that's why they're complaining about but they won that battle a long time ago women are more than sex objects but it's but that doesn't mean that it's never good to be appreciated that way there's a lot of good which is why we'll, women spend billions of dollars to appear sexy you know because there's a lot of upside to it also um as long as that's not all you're appreciated for but it's also damaging to never be appreciated for that for that and that's what what's hurt men and and we like in the in the initiator role we're we're the ones pursuing we're the ones saying i find you attractive I'll, i might pretend like oh those those are interesting glass frames like glass frames you have on there deb um where do, you know <laughs> but i'm really thinking oh i like the way you look you know i'd like to get to know you but i can't say that and um so men, and men never hear that so um that's something okay I, I got sidetracked but anyway so that was the media thing and and i i it's the bottom line is it's important to 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 stop this advertisers admit that they do this that that if they showed women the way they show men women would complain they admit it that they're you know, the only ones they could pick on are, are men but we think that boys growing up have this thousand year old ego that you know it's okay for them to do it because women have have been oppressed for thousands of years as men's you know and we don't realize these are just kids and we're damaging kids yeah absolutely yeah the, the and we're, let me just say we're also damaging men you know when when you go to a, a custody hearing or something and the judge is thinking all i have seen are men's fathers screwing up fathers who don't know how to take care of their children of course i'm going to give custody to the mother it's it's in a child's best interest so these things really rebound and and it's very important that we change them yeah yeah um thanks for that whole like contextual um like kind of backdrop against i, I want to get into like the details of what the early move uh, the early days of the the men's rights movement looked like for you like how you mentioned you know the difficulty with getting a grant but like how how did it progress? How did it grow? Um, curious as to, as to more of the details on that. Oh, all right. Um, first, I reached out to to women's groups, to feminist groups, thinking um, that you think that we like this. We 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 don't like these roles. These are damaging roles. We want to change them as much as you do. We could work on this together. And they were like, um, shut up. <laughs> We've been listening to you for thousands of years. You have nothing to add to this discussion. You just sit back at our meetings and listen to us. And I wasn't allowed to talk. So I realized there was not going to be the kind of movement that I wanted to really create. You know, And I thought they would jump at the chance. I, I thought, um, because, if, if I want to sell you um, something, sell you a, a, a car, the worst sales message would be, You're, you already have it great without this car, but I think you should buy this car anyway. 
because it will make things worse for you, but better for me. <laughs> you know, like that's not a good sales message. You know, for just for self-interest, if nothing else, if you could sell equality as helping men instead of giving them their comeuppance, um, we could have a movement that does not create anger and resentment and hostility between men and women. We could have a movement where we're both motivated to to get to that final end you know that that goal isn't that better and and they were like no it's not better and i need to express my anger towards you so so my first attempt at um at just reaching out to feminists didn't work and i realized okay i've got to start my own thing and i formed it was called men's rights incorporated which was um a, i chose the name be, because of the acronym the MR, Mr. Inc. And I chose that because as, as a, um, a, like, because a, I was mocking kind of the creation of the, of the title Ms. I was saying that um, what this movement needs to, what feminists are doing is just a knee-jerk assumption that um, anything men have is better than what women have because men are privileged. And if men only have one title, women should have one title because it's better. Um, and I feel that the movement should be, it's really easy to identify sexism because it's when men and women are treated differently. You know, like this is clearly the fact that men have one title, women have two, ti uh, two titles. Clearly that's an issue, but let's talk about it. Let's decide what's best for people instead of just automatically assuming that's what's better for men is better for everybody. Um, so what about these two titles that women have? Well, for men, since it's our role to initiate relationships, which is hard enough, you know, and you're dealing with enough rejection, it's really handy to know if you're talking to a married woman or not, you know, if she's available or not. So for us, it's, it's an important clue. Um, but when you're applying for a job, it's not only none of the employer's business, whether I'm married or not, it's none of their business, whether I'm a woman or not. So we shouldn't, and feminism saying I'm applying for the, this job as, um, Ms. Hayward, you know, or Ms. Falsoy, um, is saying my my gender is so important that that's the first thing I want you to know about me. And that's the exact opposite of what a real equal, a successful equal rights movement should be saying. It's like we don't, it's, it's like if, if, um, if the, the civil rights movement for blacks wanted to incorporate race into their name so that, um, you know, we should we should be saying Fred White Man Hayward and Kobe Black Man Bryant, you know, and um, it's, it's the exact opposite of what we should be doing. And, and so so anyway, that's how I chose the name just to say we got to stop this knee jerk thing. The way to move this movement forward is to identify where there's sexism and for us to have an equal conversation, sharing our experiences, sharing our needs and talk about what is best for people. Okay. I can, I'm trying to understand, um, if you can help, like, help me understand that part about, are you saying like people the feminist movement sort of, um, put their gender first like in that, that example of applying for a job or i'm just trying to like i'm just trying to grasp that okay uh, no not, not intentionally not intentionally but that's the effect of demanding that i be addressed as ms falzoi instead of just falzoi or deb or whatever that's the effect of saying that i i want a title and i want the actual sole information of that title to to tell you who, um, my gender that's that's the effect of it okay i think i got it okay um so in that in the in movement... i'm sorry so th that's that's just one example you know but but and that's why i chose the 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 name mr inc um but it it 
it has to do with like every 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 gender issue should be and what i'm saying is they should all be examined from that point of view of what's best for people instead of men have this so that so i want this like men have careers so i want a career because it's there's no downside to it it's really better and then women women have found oh my god i really you know the stress of this it's it's hurting my life expectancy i'm i'm not having all the free time i used to have i'm not able to spend time with my children i need to try to balance you know like there are downsides to it too and we need that's that's where the conversation needs to go so that um yes we should facilitate the the um flow of women into careers but we also need to to facilitate the flow of men out of careers and talk about what's best for people what's best for people is having the experience of raising children and having a career or and some combination according to what you really want and what your what works best with your partner okay got it um, <laughs> yeah, i was trying to process all of that and so how did the how did the movement progress were, were, did you just continue to get um sort of doors shut or I started doing things in, in I, I was living in Boston at the time. And somehow, I and everyone in my family, for some reason, has a flair for media, we all ended up in that in some way, my, my dad was a taught Latin and Greek at NYU. Um, and then got a, a part-time job as a news commentator on the radio and um, and covered the opening, I guess then it became a full-time job and covered the opening of the United Nations in, uh, in New York City and became enthralled with it. And so when they stopped daily coverage, he stuck with the UN and became a radio, TV and film producer for the United Nations. So he ended up going from latin and greek to the media and my sister studied biology and psychology got her master's in counseling and ended up doing radio and tv commercials and talent and stuff and i started out in, in teaching math and being a diplomat and ended up doing talk shows so that's that's what came next is that i started doing things um the, the first thing i did was ladies nights um, and not that ladies nights were the most important issue and therefore it should be number one, but I knew that if, if I did something with ladies nights, I would get publicity. And so I challenged that I went before the Massachusetts committee against commission rather against discrimination about ladies nights. And, um, they were very dismissive at first. And I said, Suppose some inner city bar down in, in Dorchester or Roxbury, if you're familiar, um, decided that they wanted to attract more affluent white customers from the suburbs. And so they had white Wednesdays. Every Wednesday, whites would get cheap drinks and get in for free. Would that be okay? And they said, you know, it, it just clicked. They said, no, we have laws against discrimination in a place of public accommodation on the basis of race, sex, religion, national origin. And, you know, bingo, you just said sex. That's the law. And um, so Bo the Boston Globe came out with this full page story on the man who banned ladies nights. And um, a few talk shows reached out to me thinking I was going to be funny because I'm talking about something silly and um, and I wasn't, you know, and at the end they would go, wow, this is really interesting. Do you want to come back and we'll we'll talk about it? And um, one show, one radio program, radio station in Boston offered me my own show right on the spot. He's at the end of the half hour interview, he said, how long can you be talking about this? I said, I could just keep going on. It's like feminism. You know, there's, there are so many issues and they offered me my own show. Um, so it would, it, it just grew, you know, and some, some 
reporter would see the show or hear the show and say, this is interesting. I think I'll write an article about this guy. And the producer would read that and let's book this guy. And soon I was doing a, a hundred talk shows a year, but I was using it. You know, I didn't, I wasn't just talking about um, ladies nights. I would talk about the, the role of initiating relationships and, and how by women not sharing that, that ultimately hurts both men and women and the relationship and how important it is to actually share that role. And, and I was doing that. Then I challenged, um, draw, uh, automobile insurance and, and, um, I challenged the life insurance companies, which are charging men more f for life insurance than women, which made financial sense to them. Um, because since the average man was going to die earlier, that meant that they would have to pay out on fewer premiums because he was dead <laughs> while the women were still paying premiums. So they charged higher premiums for men. It made financial sense. But at the same time, the Supreme Court had declared pension plans um, that they were, it was illegal for them to cite those same actuarial statistics to charge women more for pension plans for the exact same reason that since a woman would live longer, she'd be taking more money out of the pension plan, and therefore we should charge her more. And I said, well, if one, if it's illegal to use those actuarial tables here, why isn't it illegal to use it here? Um, but with each of these issues, you know, I, I, then I would get some publicity and I would say, well, the, you know, as important as life insurance premiums are, the real issue is life expectancy. Um, let's talk about that. So I, I would do these things and use it to talk about more important issues. And that's how it grew. I can't remember your question anymore. <laughs> no, that's interesting. Um, yeah, just how, how this whole thing progressed, how the movement itself progressed. Um, yeah, so so with all that media coverage, we're, were you getting more and more people or men in particular to like, you know, join in with what you're doing or like, or some sense of a movement happening? Um, yeah, I most of the men, who, men would contact me about all kinds of things, but I, but the biggest, I don't know if it was a majority, but certainly a plurality were men dealing with uh, family court issues because nothing raises your awareness more than, you know, if you're, you're, you're in, standing in a court, you're standing right next to a woman, it's a man against a woman, and the court is saying, well, she's the woman, so she wins. It's that simple. And so that raises their, it's, it's not like with the draft that I was referring to earlier, where they keep calling an 18-year-old boys and girls and put them in the same room and then point to them, <laughs> you know, like it's not as immediate. So um, I, was, I was getting hundreds and hundreds of, of calls, but um, it didn't, there's a, there was also a suppression of this, the, an active suppression. Um, in, in fact, I, I published, I had to publish a few articles under women's names. I would send in an article, they would reject it. I would wait a couple of weeks, send in the exact same article with the woman's name and they would buy it. And so, because women were allowed to talk about these issues and men, men aren't. Um, so there was, there's a lot of, did you see the movie, The Red Pill? No. Oh, can I talk about that for a minute? Yeah, go for it. Maybe more than a minute. Um, it was um, a, a feminist documentary filmmaker, an award-winning winning filmmaker, wanted to make an expose of the men's rights movement. And she wanted to expose us to be what feminists said we were, which were um, a bunch of angry losers who are resentful of the progress women made and are whining about silly issues because male privilege and we have no important issues. And so she decided to make this documentary and started interviewing us. I was the second person she, she talked to and uh, we, we talked all day. It, it was great. And she's, she had the same reaction that you did initially, where it was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, I can't think of anything. That sounds logical. And, uh, and she was saying, but I can't help feeling there's something wrong with this because that's not what feminism is saying, but everything you're saying is logical and documented and so on. And she ended up 
making a movie that was the exact opposite of what she intended to make. Because after over a year of interviewing men or, you know, around men who are active in the movement, she realized that um, we're not angry losers. We're, we're intelligent people in loving relationships who totally support equality for women and who are talking about really important issues. And that if there's gotta be a villain in this piece, it's really feminist organizations who are the villain for suppressing this discussion and they're actively suppressing it. Um, and so this is all part of her movie and, and you should all see it. Her name is Cassie J and it's now free on YouTube. So um, it's, it's really, it's really worth seeing. And then there's a, a, like a little chapter about me and my son on, on there. So <laughs> you should see it or learn more about me. But, um, that I, I guess the reason I started talking about it was because of that act of suppression of the movement, you know, I, um, and it did, so that's, it didn't take off. Um, it didn't get the publicity that it really should have, but it continues. And there are, um, there are annual, there are, there are conferences and things. I, I've been invited to some as the elder statesman, you know, as a co-founder and, oh, I, I need to make a side note about the, the co-founder thing. Um, but, uh, and, and women take an active role in it because some some of them are are second wives or sisters or mothers you know and they see what's happening to their brothers and and their sons and their fathers and um so there are a lot of women who are increasingly involved and that's a good thing because for one thing it should be men and women working together but also women have more credibility women you know as i as i used that example before where a, a woman could could publish something that a man can't publish and a woman could say things and people will listen to women talking about these particular issues, maybe, maybe not sports or something, but these particular issues, women have more credibility when, when they talk about it. And, and men are still carrying around that, oh, I'm a man, I can't complain, it's unmanly to do that. And women are more likely to speak out and, and, uh, and seek help and so on. So women have a very important role as, as this movement continues. And it's just for me, you know, as I'm in old age now to, it's so encouraging to go to these meetings and to see all the young people involved and, and so many young women who are taking leadership roles in it. Oh, the side, I, I told you, I, I got to do a side note. Where did I say that? All I remember is saying, I want to do a side note. Um, uh, the co-founder. Oh yeah, co-founder, thank you. Thank you for listening to me. <laughs> um, when I started this movement in, in Boston, it turned out that at exactly the same time, 400 miles to my south, there was another man starting the same movement. He had the same vision. His name is Richard Haddad, and he formed something called um, Free Men. And he was saying the same things I was saying and, you know, wanting to do the same things. And this was before there was really an internet, you know, so it took a while before we found each other. Um, but once we did, we just became lifelong friends and he passed away. Um, Two, almost two years ago. So I'm now the last surviving founder, but I really want to give credit to Richard Haddad. He was totally a co-founder and a wonderful person. Thank you for listening to Screw the Hierarchy. If you feel like you need more help, I have a free guide to recovery steps at dignitytogether.org targets and a sign up for daily boosts through your inbox at the same place. All of the content in this podcast was created and edited by yours truly, Deb Falzoy, and the music you heard is from Kevin McLeod. All right, have a wonderful rest of your week, and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.